We are in a new series called Blessed Life, and I want to give to you a couple of resources as I start uh, today, just for extra reading. You do read your Bible, right? Right, right, you read your Bible. This is a good thing, right? How many of you have more than one Bible? Yeah, this is good. I took a quiz a couple weeks ago, and you couldn't see it from the floor. I asked how many of you have Bibles, I mean, and then I said paper Bibles, and then I asked for e-Bibles. I was shocked at the, at the radiation that came towards my head. <laughs> but how many of you have an e-Bible or something online? Yeah, and some of you, just, that's just a new thing for you. That's a great technology to have for, with you in the car all the time, and as long as it works, it's a great way to to just keep the word before you. You can get it podcasts and given to you audio and that sort of thing. I just recommend that you read the Bible every day or hear the word of the Lord every day, okay? And, and that's one thing. Some of you need the Bible twice a day. Some of you need it three times a day. How many of you uh, eat more than once a day? You eat maybe three times a day. Yeah, slackers. I, I only eat once a day. Starts at usually 6 in the morning and ends about 10 at night. It's just one, one meal. I only eat one meal, but it's kind of a buffet. But uh, here's the point. You, you may need spiritually sometimes just to recharge in the day. So read the Bible throughout the day, over lunch break, before supper, on your trip home, things like that. that that's a really good thing. Now, having said all that, there's a couple of books I want to recommend to you for the Blessed Life series. We're going to be in this series about eight weeks, Lord willing, and, and it's the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5. If you have a Bible there, to go there now, Matthew 5. But a book that has meant a lot to me, it's not a brand new book, but it's by Max Lucado. It's called The Applause of Heaven. The Applause of Heaven. He does in story um, just a wonderful job of telling great stories from the Bible and his own imagination, what the applause of heaven is all about. It's the blessed life. The Sermon on the Mount. Max Lucado, The Applause of Heaven. It's a great book. Now, let me give you another book uh, that you may want to also pick up. This is not a new book. This is coming up on 30 years old. It, but this book will change the trajectory of your life. I just reread a bunch of it, not the whole book, but almost the whole book this week. It's called The Blessing, and it's by Gary Smalley and John Trent. Now, the Blessing by Gary Smalley and John Trent unpacks not the Sermon on the Mount, but your, your inner drive for the blessing. Get this, it's huge. You grew up as a little boy, a little girl, wanting the blessing from your mother or father. When you didn't get it there, you maybe went to your grandmother or grandfather. If you didn't get it there, you went to the street and got it. But you, you want the blessing. And the blessing may be just affirmation, confirmation, and attaboy, rustling your hair. The affirmation could come lots of ways. But if you did not get it, there is something within you now that still wants it. Okay? Gary Smalley and John Trent have done a wonderful job of explaining the blessing and then how to live out the blessing to the next generation. How to discover your own... Because you may be walking wounded right now. I mean, you may be saying... Well, Dave's talking about the blessing, but I, don't, I feel really empty and I feel like cast away. The, this would be, even though it's not the Sermon on the Mount, it's a great book, The Blessing. And if you don't know who Gary Smalley is, he's probably one of the best marriage therapists out there. He's written a lot of books, has done video seminars, all that kind of thing. It, anything pretty much by Gary Smalley is going to be good, but those are two 
uh, really good resources. Okay, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are. And the series is called The Blessed Life. And, and by, by, the, by the time we get to Matthew 5, Jesus is born. That's Matthew 1 and 2, right? He's born. You get the whole lineage of his name, the whole history of his name in chapter 1. By chapters 3 and 4, he's growing up, and he, now he's an adult. And now he's going to go to public ministry. And it's at this point that we hear his very first sermon. This is huge. This is, it, this is bigger than I can say because it's the first impression. It's the first words. It's the, the very first sermon. God gives us his son, his one and only son, who loves the world and wants to come. And his son now is demonstrating the love of the Father and the message from the Father. And what does he do? He gives to us an eight-fold, get this, don't miss it. He gives us an eight-fold blessing. Now, could Jesus have opened his uh, sermon with, uh, I want to talk to you about how bad you are. Could he have done it? Yes, he could have. Would he have been right? Yes, he would have. Could he have started with the eight-fold curses? (laughs) This is going to happen to you if you don't shape up. You'll have to ship out. We'll have to make some cuts around here. Well, he could have started with eight curses, eight warnings, eight doomsday predictions. He didn't do any of that. Why? Because that's not in his nature to do that. He started with the blessings, and those blessings became the positioning of his whole ministry. Just like you, the first time you meet someone, you have a first impression, right? That becomes a lasting impression. When Jesus stood up, the first impression they got was, God in heaven wants to bless us. Now, I know some Christians who are negative. Don't raise your hand, don't point, okay? But you've been around negative people, right? Negative Christians, kind of whiny, just need to take a nap, need a little more caffeine, need to take a happy pill. They took the whiny pill. Do you know what I'm talking about? You need a nap because you took the whiny pill. But you've met negative Christians. That does happen in life. Some don't want to hear the message of Jesus, so what do they do? They make the good news bad news. Or they make the good news somehow negative. That's going to happen because they don't want to hear the good news. So this is what I recommend that you do. Just look at the life of Jesus. Don't look about what other people say about him. Just look at his own words. Find out what he says about himself and what he says in the message. And here's what we'll read. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. Now stop there. We have been getting this wrong all my life. You should be standing and I should be sitting. (laughs) Do you see that in the text? I do. How could I have missed it? I've read this before. It never made sense to me. So would you all... No, you don't even stand. What this means is this. You ever been to a college or a school of education or something and they have a chairman of a department? That's what he's talking about here. It's the chair of the department. There's a sitting chair. You ever been to a courtroom? Not, not any of you, but you know someone who went to court and they went to visit the sitting judge? Yeah. You see the sitting judge. That's the person in authority. It's the place of authority. It's the place of high regard. And in education, it's the place of, of real teaching. So he sits down and they are standing there. And, and, and here are his words. Blessed. Verse 3, are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, uh, verse 5, blessed are the meek. 6, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. 
Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He just blesses, 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 blesses. Is anybody getting a theme here? I certainly am, and I'm a slow learner, and even I'm getting it. Jesus wants you to be blessed. He wants your life to be blessed, your events of your life, your relationships, your marriage, your finances. He wants your children, your family. He wants your job, your health, your future, your in-laws, your outlaws, even the people down the street from you you don't even like because they don't bring their trash can back after the trash has been emptied. He wants to bless them too. He wants to bless your future. By the way, have you ever noticed this before when a person is just absolutely destitute of anything good and, and then there's nothing you can say about them, so what do you say about them? Well, well bless his heart. Why do you do that? Because nobody else will bless his heart, right? Because he's so clueless to life, right? And what does Jesus say about it? Yes, that's the guy I want to bless. The whole message of Jesus is blessing. So what is this blessedness? What, what does it mean to bless? Well, we say that when someone sneezes or when someone has nothing good that we can imagine about their life, well, bless his heart. But that's not the biblical term. The biblical term is the word, makarios is the Greek term. I only use that term with you because there are other terms that Jesus will talk about good happenings that are different than makarios. But this, this particular word means happiness. But more than just happiness, it's kind of a joyful happiness. It's a happiness because of contentment. It's a happiness... In, in other words, a total, ultimate bliss. It's a happiness you don't deserve and no one can take away. It's, it's blessedness. It's different than just typical happiness. It's makarios, that's the term. Now, Jesus would use other terms and so would the writers of scripture. There were other terms for happiness that had to do with, with good things that happened. But they, it's because good things happened. You got a job, you got a house, you got a car, your kids went to college. That's not something to be happy about. Your kids graduated from college and got a job. That's happiness, right? They got, they're paying their own phone bill. I'm ecstatic at this point. Any, amen? Anybody else? Oh, my goodness. My phone bill is now, you know, getting close to my house mortgage payment, you know. And, I, and so I, I'm happy when the happenings happen the right way. And, there are terms for that in the Bible, and they're good terms. Nothing wrong with those. But what this is talking about is different. This is talking about happiness that is so satisfying, so joyful, so absolutely blissful that no one can take it away because we have the potential to be happy when Christ is on the throne of our lives. That's the big idea. What Jesus is announcing here is so different. It, it could almost be explained as joy, but it's, it's different than joy, but it's a kind of inner kind of contentment no one can take away. It's the blessing. And the opposite of this would be, I thought, in my studies, would be the cursing. Curse you, Red Baron, you know? Why, why do they say that? I, it's just, you know, you want to send them away. No, that's not the word Jesus would use. He uses blessing, and instead of just cursing, he would say back one step from that, he used the word woe. Remember that? Woe, you Pharisees. Woe, you. You're like snakes, he would say. And what he's saying there is you're headed towards the cursing. So even when he flipped it, he wasn't as nasty 
as he could have been. He wasn't cursing them. He was telling them where they were really headed. And the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount that is Matthew, really Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when the Sermon on the Mount is given, it's the exposition of the holiness of God. You've got to get this. His righteous demands, and he describes those expectations. And those expectations are beyond our capabilities. But he calls them blessedness. He calls them happy. He describes the kind of life that God expects those who follow him. And holiness, get this, holiness is the path to that happiness. You're saying to yourself, well, you know, I, I know the path of happiness. At the end of this message today, I'm going to leave, drive down the street, I'm going to pick up some groceries, and when I get out, of, you know, I'm paying for my groceries, a horn will sound and confetti will drop from the sky in the grocery store, and they'll say, you're our 100th million customer, and you're going to get free groceries the rest of your life. And then they give you this card, that, and you're saying, that's blessedness. To which I would reply, um, am I going to get like a discount on gas too? That's what I would ask. Does it include the gas station out front? Huh? But that's happiness based upon just happenstance. Jesus is saying this kind of happiness will be based and rooted in holiness. In being absolutely reliant upon a wonderful God in heaven who's absolutely pure and right in all of his ways, and I trust him. That's the path to true happiness. This is the path to true blessed life. And that doesn't happen just by happening. You have to put that into motion. Jesus would put it in John 13. You know these things, and, and you're happy, but only you're happy if you, if you do what I say. It's the same term from John 13 to Matthew 5. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? That's our second question. First question, what's the blessed life? It's this happy, overjoyed, happy life. I know most of you right now are going, I'm so happy. You're starting to sing it now, aren't you? (laughs) Ernest's going to get the hat. I'm going to give him a hat, and then he'll do that song. And some of you right now, and Ernest Ernest will act like he doesn't know, like I'm, I'm too spiritual to know what that song is. Sometimes Ernest will say, you know, what, what, do you, what song do you want to do? And I'll say, I, I like to do this song. And I'll sing him a few bars. I'll sing a song. He'll go, no, sing it for me. I go, I just did. He said, now put melody on it. <laughs> I just, just stop being so funny, Ernest. That's right. <laughs> That's the kind of joy. Just your day is just overjoyed. Okay? That's the first question. Second question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because that's the path to this happiness. Verse 3, would you read it out loud with me? Chapter 5, verse 3, read it with me aloud. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. The word poor here is a really interesting word. Very graphic word, actually. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus would use it elsewhere, and Luke would actually record it. Let me read you that story from Luke 16. Luke the physician writes, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At the gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Can you imagine this? Now, right now, some of you have, 
you have dogs at home, you have pets, but you wash them, you clean them, you feed them. That wasn't what they did back then. Dogs were what cleaned the streets. They were, they were used for protection and hunting. You didn't feed your dog. You didn't care for your dog. These, these were like rodents in the day. They were animals, beasts. So when the dogs felt bad for this guy, his, his life was bad, okay? Some people say, yeah, it's a terrible life. He's got a dog's life. Well, you know, I know what it's like to have a dog's life in America. It means he sleeps most of the day, chases a car twice, gets fed three times a day, never worries about anything. That's a dog's life in America. A dog's life in that day, he was scrounging all the time. And if the dogs even showed sympathy on him, that means this beggar was in a bad place. Now I pick up the story again. The time came for the beggar. He died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. Pictorial way of saying towards heaven or towards this this space out there at Abraham's side. So what's the term that Jesus used here that that gets translated poor in Matthew 5? It's the term beggar. And it's in light of that we realize what Jesus is calling us to be is people who are so aware that we are poverty-stricken. That's what the word beggar means, without resource. The root word means to cringe or to cover Have you ever seen a person, they're begging, but all dignity is lost. They can't even look up as they hold the cup. They they need something, but they're so embarrassed. They cover even their head or their face as they beg. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Designed for Living, uh, just hang on, I'm going to quote him. He says, our Lord did not choose the word lightly when he said, blessed are the beggars in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual paupers. Blessed are the spiritually destitute. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt ones who cringe and cower because of their helplessness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. End of quote. He writes, Blessed is this beggar who knows he doesn't have what it takes spiritually. Now, back away and understand who Jesus was talking to at the moment. He wasn't talking to a group of people who didn't know the law. He was probably talking to the very spiritually self-sufficient. And he knew they would never cut it before the Father in heaven, and so he's telling them, you are not spiritually bankrupt. You are self-righteous and proud, and you're this, hey, look at me kind of people. And so what he said in blessedness, that's what we would hear, to some of the spiritually stiff-necked people, it came out as a woe, not as a blessedness. Because he's essentially saying, you aren't bankrupt. You think you can still make it on your own. And I can't help but think, those who knew the law probably had echoing in their heads and hearts, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you God, you will not despise And again from Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He saves us, but only when we're brokenhearted. And he's not talking about being brokenhearted over bereavement, over things that cause us grief in this life, but over the brokenness that we are at the end of ourselves. This is not a passing thought for Jesus. Jesus centers this, and this is his first one. He stands up to give his first sermon, and what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are beggars. 
for you're the ones who are the kingdom's all about. Jesus would again uh, illustrate this for us, and Luke again would, would record it, Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their self-righteousness, looked down on everyone else, and Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Can you imagine praying that prayer? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. They're saying, look at me. I got it together. See, that's what they're saying. And Jesus is saying, you are not poor in spirit. You don't get it. But the tax collector stood at a distance, verse 13. He would not even look to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The first guy really didn't get it, did he? He commends himself for not being like the others. He's saying, way, I'm way better and controlled by pride and and driven by achievement. He thought he was in, and Jesus said, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus let it be known. This guy hasn't hit bottom yet. He is not poor in spirit. He's not ready for the kingdom. On the other hand, there's this guy who says, oh, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. He claimed nothing of his own ability, his own performance. He had no assets, nothing. And he cast himself completely upon the grace of God. And Jesus says about that guy, that guy gets it. This is what the kingdom is about. And those who humble themselves like that, those are the ones who will be exalted. So what do you and I have to offer God? And the answer is nothing. And what does God have to offer us? Absolutely everything. So that's what it means to be poor in spirit. So you're saying, okay, how do I put that into motion? How how am I going to deal with this? Well, let, let let me finish by talking to you about the sermon itself. The words of Jesus are absolutely perfect, right, church? Right? I mean, his words are perfect. His sermon's going to be perfect, right? And the word of God is going to be perfect. I have to believe if the guy speaking and the guy writing, all this is perfect, I think even the order in which the blessedness comes out is even perfect. And so it doesn't matter Verse 4, those who mourn. Verse 5, those who are meek. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't matter about those. If you don't get the first one right, if you are not fully bankrupt, if you don't see how incredibly great is the riches of his grace, if we don't see that, nothing else really matters because we think somehow we're doing God a favor by jumping on his team. And if you want to call God uh, uh, onto God and call upon his justice, you can do that, but you will sorely lose every time. It's disastrous. I would rather approach him based upon his mercy and upon his grace and plead the mercy now and his grace every day. Admit the need. So there's one thing that we have to do. Here it is. This is the, this is the answer to the whole sermon. There's one thing that we do to become poor in spirit, and that's this. We, we have to be honest with God and ourselves. Just that simple. Be honest with God and ourselves. And that's harder than it appears. It's way harder than you think it is. 
Because most of us say, I don't know, how you doing? I'm getting along just fine. <laughs> we lie to ourselves. Don't nod your head, don't mo make a motion, but we all lie to ourselves. We just do. We call it a coping mechanism or managing or calming the mental strategy, this mental stress. We say things like, we can do this, I can do this, or soon this will be over. Or we tell God, I slipped up just once, hoping that he doesn't know about the other times. Who are we kidding? And then we do it with God. We say, sorry, God, it won't happen again. Or, um, God, I'll try harder. But we know in our hearts, I can't try harder. I've been, I'm trying as hard as I can. I can't do better than I am. So here's the answer. Be honest with God. God, I blew it. I'm bankrupt. And be honest with yourself. I don't have what it takes. And if I don't have what it takes, and I admit to God that I'm bankrupt, nothing good comes from my heart. That's when we begin to realize, Lord, I'm really desperate for you. And if anything good comes out of my life, it's going to have to come through you. I am desperate for you. And, and if you follow the Lord very long at all, follow the Lord very long at all, what you're going to find is this. You'll even pray a prayer like this. God, I'm surprised at how kind and gracious you've been to me, and I still wander off. I don't know what part of me does that. I, I want to fix that, and I don't know how to fix that, but I at least want to be honest with you and say I am surprised at my own waywardness because given the opportunity, I don't go towards holiness. I go towards pollution. I don't go towards purity. I go towards chaos. So God, renew a right spirit within me. Cleanse me. Work through my life because I am desperate for you. And what you're going to find is this. You will find a God in heaven who is not only gracious, but you'll find a God in heaven who's ready to forgive. You stop it with the justifications. You stop it with the defense mechanisms, the stonewalling, and the postponement of the inevitable. You stop all that. You're, what you're going to find is a God who not only knows and understands, but he's gracious and he's ready to forgive, and he accepts you and me, this is huge. He accepts us unconditionally. Right now, some of us are saying, yeah, but if he knew some stuff about me, he really wouldn't accept me. You know what? That's a bad view of God. Number one, he already knows. Number two, he already accepts. The issue is, will you come clean with God and be honest with him? That's the real, that's the real answer. What we're going to find is a God who accepts us unconditionally. And then what we're going to learn is that this holiness of God, I, I, I don't have to play games. I can't play games. And I can't hide stuff from him. So I might as well own up to it and admit it. And when we find ourselves spiritually bankrupt, this is the beautiful part. When we own up to who we are before God, we find out that his wonderful riches of his grace is more than enough, more than enough. I, you know, people have favorite passages and scriptures, and I have one that I, I just quote occasionally, and it's Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. It's really well worth memorizing. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God, not of works. Why? So no one can boast. And I have that memorized. What I don't have memorized is verse 7, the one right in front of it. And it says this, that God does, gives to us Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show his in, 
incomparable riches of his grace. Isn't that cool? His, the riches of his grace, get this now, expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When Jesus came, he brought with him the grace from God and he demonstrates it with his kindness. Get this, he's not, he's not coming going, I'm gonna clean house. No, he's coming to say, I'll clean up your life. But that'll only happen if you're honest with him. Now, it's to, I'm gonna close here for prayer, but here's the deal. If you postpone doing this, there's a fair chance you will not, you will not soften your heart to this later. So I'm gonna ask you, during these, these moments in prayer, you do business with God about your own heart. Let's bow together for prayer. You could be here this morning saying, I don't know the riches of his grace because I've never trusted Christ. So you open your heart to him now. There is one name by which you can be saved, and it's the name of Christ. And that name is above every other name. If you come to him in personal faith now and trust him, he promises to come into your life. You just talk to him in your own way, but you tell the Lord, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I need Christ as my Savior. And it may be messy for you, may be really imperfect for you, but you come and you trust him and embrace him in faith. At the close of the service, uh, Keith Williamson will be up at the front on the left. You need someone to pray with, that would be wonderful. You pray with them. If you want more information, you can grab it at the, in the lobby at the kiosk. But let me talk for a moment just with the, the Christian brothers and sisters in the room. You've trusted Christ and you've struggled with this achievement thing. The scripture from a thousand years before Jesus is be still, literally cease striving. Stop working at it and know, the writer of the psalm says, and know that I am God. Stop trying to prove that I'm worthy. Stop trying to prove that I have something to prove. Stop trying to prove that I'm a good bargain for God and admit, just be open and honest. Admit, uh, God, I don't have what it takes to follow you. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am out of steam and out of, off of course. God, help me with this. And what you're going to find is a gracious God who accepts you unconditionally. And you're going to find some relief in your heart, even right now. Just a kind of a letdown relief to know you don't have to do anything. It's all been done on the cross. And in light of that, in that sense of relief, the sense of blessing will come over you. For Father, you have blessed us in all spiritual blessing in all high places, and we want that blessing for our lives in every corner of our lives, but you'll only go where we allow you to. And now, dear Father in heaven, we recognize just how desperate we are for you. May we come running to you, not only in faith, but to cling to you in faithfulness. May we come knowing of our desperate state, we pray in Christ's name.